This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. It's an exciting time. It is a, the season of hearts. Hearts are everywhere. And not just, I know, some of you are like, Valentine's Day. No, 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 not just Valentine's Day. Hearts in lots of expressions. Uh, if you watched the State of the Union address last week, you got to see a president share what he felt was the heart of his, his politic. Okay, uh, uh, you got to see that. If you were watching the Grammys, you maybe started to question what's at the heart of the entertainment industry. Right? That was kind of odd, concerning. Uh, but you saw the heart of, of entertainment tonight, uh, the heart of American sports. Uh, some might say, as you get together and watch the big game, maybe you're making buffalo chicken dip. Maybe you want to invite me. Uh, that would be cool. That would be cool. Um, oddly enough, pastors don't get invited a lot of places. So, <laughs> Maybe you're like, why does he not understand why? Um, it's, 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 he's just going to stare at me the whole game. You could still send me the buffalo chicken dip. I don't, maybe that would be better. I just, you get to watch the game, I get to eat the buffalo chicken dip. Uh, the heart of, and of course, Tuesday is Valentine's Day, and there's hearts everywhere, hearts abounding, hearts in the store, and hearts on the windows, and maybe you've gotten some hearts to hand out. Maybe you've, you've seen these hearts, I maybe mean, you're familiar with, you know how long those things have been around? They've been making those things for 170 years. Those conversation hearts, 170 years, they've been cranking out the be mine and, and kiss me. Originally, they were a lot bigger, a lot bigger, and they had longer phrases on them. Here's an example of one. Married in white, you have chosen right. Uh, yeah, that's cute. Isn't that neat? Yeah, okay. Here's another one. This was actually, this, imagine guys giving this to a girl. Girls, imagine getting this. How long shall I have to wait? Please be considerate. <laughs> have some candy. <laughs> what do you do with that, right? I mean, like, maybe in 1910 that was okay. <laughs> like, I mean, like, uh. <laughs> We're used to be mine, kiss me on those little conversation hearts. They've tried to, the companies tried to stay updated. In the 80s, they had fax me on some of the hearts, yeah. Uh, then they changed it to call me, and now they have text me, which is, is cool, it's cool. Um, stamping heart, stamping names on hearts. If, if they were to stamp something on the heart of America, what word would they use to describe it? What, what did you say? Mess. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. If you were in charge of picking the word that is going to go on and describe the heart of America, what word might you pick? I don't know. Might be fun to think about. Maybe less fun to think about. If Jesus had to stamp your heart, what word would he pick? In fact, on your notes, why don't you write down four words? Write down the four words that you feel where you are right now. If you're online, do this too. Find a piece of paper. Write down four words that you feel Jesus could realistically pick to describe your heart this morning. Where your heart is. What words would come to mind? What is the state of your heart? Your personal state of the union. Continue thinking about that. But today we're going to look at the story of where Jesus does that to a disciple actually. 
Jesus peers into his inner being and has some things to say about his heart. And I think there are things that will be very encouraging for us, maybe very encouraging for you. Maybe you look at your heart and you're like, hmm, hmm, hmm. Here is someone who Jesus and the Holy Spirit puts forth as an example of qualities we might want to take on as we think about our heart. So this morning we're going to do some heart work. Some heart work. Let me pray and ask the Spirit's blessing upon our gathering, please. And you pray wherever you're at. Father God, I ask that you would favor us this morning and that what happens here in this space would be according to your will for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you would be lifted high in what is said and prayed in the hearts of our people. May you be lifted up. Spirit of the living God that convicts and confronts and comforts, would you do your heart work this morning? For the ground has gotten hard and cold. And we need you by your grace to come along to water the soil, to break up that hard bedrock. Will you please, by your grace, place your hand upon me and get me out of the way so that you can speak freely to your people? Don't let me say what I want to say, but what you feel needs to be said. And open the hearts of the listeners. Some have come in with dark and hard hearts. The world has hardened them. Their sin has hardened them. Experience has confused them. Make them ready to hear. Because we tear down strongholds this morning. We are breaking the chains of the evil one. And we are spitting in the face of hell. That your kingdom come and your will be done. That your church here, this communion of saints would grow. And the church, the greater church in the Miami Valley area and your kingdom come would grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take out a Bible, please. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. There's some located in the seat in front of you. If you would like that one, you may have it. It's free. Um, real small print, real hard to read. You might want to go buy your own. Um, but you can keep that one, seriously. Just have a Bible. Everyone needs to have a Bible. Beyond what you have on your device, perfectly okay having a Bible on your phone. But a lot of other things kind of come through your phone and can get distracting. Okay, so open up a, a copy of the scriptures and Nikki's going to have verses up on the screen for you to follow along and uh, our online people will make sure that you have a chance to follow along too. We're going to be in John chapter 1. John is one of the gospels, so you're looking for the New Testament. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. And just a little bit of a context so you know where we're getting in. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's moving about the Galilean area, going from town to town. And he's beginning to call apostles, disciples, that he's going to teach and send out. And we're going to meet an apostle that most of you probably don't know much about. You, we know about Peter and James and John, Andrew. We're familiar with Judas, maybe Levi. But there's some of the guys that don't get mentioned very often, which is surprising, especially as we look at this story today, because the man we're about to read about today is pretty special, pretty unique, and maybe someone that we want to learn from. John chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 43 through 51. I want you to follow along. John 1, 43 through 51. One. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are king of the Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let me just make some observations this morning. Can you see, did you see what Jesus had to say about Nathaniel? Right from the middle. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, what did he say? This is Jesus' description of Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And you see those two things? First, he, he says he's an Israelite indeed. He's a true Israelite. That's an idiom in, in scripture for a way of some, saying someone, an Israelite the way God always wanted Israelites to be. An Israelite who is a seeker of God. An Israelite who is good and righteous. An Israelite that is devout in his practice. A true Israelite. Sometimes when you read through the Gospels, it sounds like Jesus is having a war with the Jews. Because they'll say, and some of the Jews arose and began to question him. That term is a way of saying those who are opposed to Jesus' ministry, those who are against what Jesus is doing, maybe with some of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. They'll just use the term Jew in a negative way to say a true Israelite is to say a seeker of God the way God would want his people to be. A true Israelite. It's similar to what we might say, a true Christian. A true Christian. A Christian indeed. Because we know that you can be a Christian on the outside, right? Now you can do the Christian-y stuff that you do on the outside that some people might conclude, oh, that must be a Christian. Not that there's faith on the inside. It's something that's happening on the outside. I was listening to a podcast this week, and, and someone had did that. She was sharing about a book that she had just written. And the host said, well, are you a Christian? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. And then she goes on to unpack what she feels that means when she uses that term. Not that it is an orthodox definition of what we would say a Christian is. Someone who is allegiant to Jesus Christ. She was using it as a way of saying, oh, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. Which is a way a lot of Americans might use the term. It's a way of saying I'm a moral good person. I'm a moral good person. But here, Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, that is an Israelite indeed. There's something on the inside that makes God smile. In whom there is no deceit. Or maybe your translation says guile. What does that mean? No deceit. Well, Israel, from whom Israel got its name, the man who was first called Jacob was a man of deceit. He was a man of lies, a man of manipulation. Uh, he manipulated his older brother to get his birthright. He lied to his father to get a blessing. He was constantly on the run, constantly tricking, constantly wrestling with God. So much so that God renamed him Israel. Not a name that you might want to receive. Jacob was not an honorable man who did honorable things. 
He was always trying to use the situation for his own good. And he had no problem lying and deceiving to pull it off. So Jesus looks at Nathanael and says, oh, this isn't an Israelite of the flesh. This is an Israelite of the soul. A heart that God chases after. And so as we begin to look at this passage, there's four other qualities that I think rise up that might help us this morning as we wrestle with our own heart. What are some things that seem to be present in Nathaniel that we might want to chase after as we wrestle with what is stamped on our soul this morning? One of them is a studying heart. Maybe it'd be helpful if you wrote that down. There's lots of space in your night notes to write things down. A studying heart. Heart. A studying heart. Let me take you back into our passage. If you look at verse 45, verse 45, and it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel was able to connect the dots through the Old Testament to discern that God was sending a deliverer. He knew the Old Testament passages. He knew the law given by Moses. He knew the words of the prophets. He and Philip and others would get together to discuss and pray over what God's deliverance was going to look like, where the deliverance would come, what kind of person that deliverer would be. We can, you can do this. Some of you are able to do this. A lot of times when we get to the Advent season, we'll preach on some of those passages. Like in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a son is given, a child is born. Wonderful counselor, everlasting God, eternal father, prince of peace. Born of a virgin. In Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and the land of Judah... Genesis chapter 3. And God will raise up one who will step on the head of the snake and that snake will bite his. Lots of prophecies and promises. You see, Nathaniel had a studying heart. He knew those promises. And not like Philip comes, hey, you know all those passages? He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Nathaniel knew exactly what Philip was saying because he did study those passages. He knew the scriptures of God's deliverance. Many of you are finding out this year that reading the Bible is hard. As I've challenged us as a church family to read the Bible on a daily basis, as we work through all of scripture in the course of a year. That's what that guide is in your notes. If you were curious, it kind of tears off one side. It has a bookmark. Those are the books that we're reading together. We read a chapter from four different books. And some of you have reached out and commented to me. And they're like, um, this is hard. This is confusing. I can't read that to my kids. This isn't a children's book. No, it's not a children's book. It's a Bible. Ever notice why when they make children's Bibles, they take most of it out? Because there's stuff that you just would not read to an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. There's stuff that's hard to process. The Bible has no problem pushing you around. Sometimes it gives you more questions than answers. It expects you to walk with it, to interact with it. And so some of you are struggling. I struggle. Because to have a studying heart takes work. A lot of us just want the cookies on the bottom shelf. And the Bible's like, no, you can start climbing. Maybe there's cookies, maybe there's not. Maybe it'll knock you on your butt. Yeah. So why is having a studying heart so important when it comes to Scripture and the status of our heart? Let me illustrate it this way. In the center of our house is our kitchen. Okay? Physically, 
and metaphorically. Life happens out of the kitchen in our house. And the center of the kitchen is the stove. It's the oven. Life happens out of there. From that wonderful little box comes food by which we feed our souls. And it's yummy. Love it. One of my favorite things is cooking with my wife. We have a great time. Last night we made turkey pot stickers out of cabbage, which is really good actually. It is. And it takes us about two hours to pull it off. Because, uh, you know, you got to shock the cabbage and you got to roll. It's, it's really, so much fun. Well, a while ago I noticed, you know, it's been a while since I cleaned the oven. I should probably clean the oven. Because you know what happens in the oven, right? You know, food particles start to fall down. Things, charges, the bottom needs to be cleaned. And I looked, you know, I think that's a glass panel. I think I should be able to see into my oven. I should probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I have lots of grill cleaner because I like to, I enjoy cooking. And so yeah, I take that citrus spray and it smells so nice and orange. I get a big old scrubbing. I'm going at it. I'm going, I'm cleaning that glass panel. I'm cleaning the door. I'm cleaning the inside. I got a vacuum cleaner. I'm cleaning out that stove. I'm cleaning out the oven. Why? Why am I doing that? Because that's where the food comes from. That's where, the, that's where the life is prepped. That's where nutrients, that's how I feed my family out of that space. So what is coming out of that space matters. And isn't this what scripture does to the soul? Isn't it a bit astringent at times? Doesn't it take a scouring pad at times? That you read and you study scripture and it starts to scrape. And it starts to pick and it starts to, to pull away and it starts to loosen things up. And things start to come to the surface and you're like, ew, 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 ew. Yeah. One of the reasons that Nathaniel had a true Israelite heart, a believer's heart, is because he had a studying heart, a studying heart. Those of you who are reading, keep reading with me. Those of you who have quit reading, pick it back up again. Pick it back up again. It is hard. Another quality of his heart was he had a patient heart. It was patient. Patient heart. Jesus points out that he saw Nathanael underneath the fig tree. In Scripture, that's a way of saying that he was a man who was given to devotion to God. He would pull away to quiet, reflective places. It's where God would meet with people and do work. He would cry out to God. He would seek God. Why? Well, he's, he's reading Scripture. He's studying Scripture. He's specifically and intentionally waiting for God's deliverance. He's patient, looking for God to do something. And so to be under the fig tree is to be in that place of wrestling and struggling and praying and crying and laughing and screaming before God. He had a patient heart. He knew that God was the answer. He was one of the many who was seeking God's Messiah, God's deliverer. If you go through the beginning of Jesus's life in Luke chapter two, you bump into some of these individuals, a man named Simeon, a prophetess named Anna. Let me read them for you. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord as you are to do with your firstborn. And there, an old man named Simeon comes up to the parents. And this is what Simeon has to say. He calls Jesus the consolation of Israel. This is Luke chapter 2, 29 through 32. Luke 2, 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon was one of those who was looking for God's deliverance, who was waiting on God, like Nathaniel. Right after that, a woman, a prophetess named Anna, comes up. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 38. 
And coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was waiting for God. Nathaniel waiting on God. Can you wait? Are you patient? Are you okay waiting? If it takes Amazon two days to get something from India to you, do you get grumpy? Seriously, it took them an entire two days to get something from the other side of the world. What is wrong with this world? It's broken. Or can you wait? Can you wait on God? Do you know his promises? Can you wait upon his character and his goodness? Or do you like to move things forward on your own? Nathaniel had a, a waiting, a, a patient heart. Thirdly, he had an honest heart. An honest heart. The third one, write that down. An honest heart. Jesus said himself, a man in whom there is no deceit. But more than that, he had no problem asking questions, honest questions. Philip comes up to him and says, hey, we found him. The one that we've been praying for, the one we've been looking for, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Anointed, the Christ. The one that's in Moses, the one that's all throughout the prophets. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, I have a question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's not saying it like it's a dig to Nazareth. He's like, seriously, can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, no, no. He's like, that's a backwater, bywater crossroads. It's in the middle of nowhere. God's going to send our deliverer, the overflow, overthrower of Rome from Nazareth? That's an honest question, right? I mean, that's how God's going to do this? Further, remember, Nathaniel knows the promises. He knows what's spoken of the deliverer. Sure, Zion's mentioned. God's going to do great things at Zion. Bethlehem's mentioned. Bethlehem's mentioned as a point of prophecy for the deliverer. He's like, Nazareth? Ah, I'm struggling with the whole Nazareth thing. He asks an honest question. Can... God's righteous deliverer come from there? Some of you are reading Job this week with the church family, right? Job asks some questions. Job's confused. Uh, God, what are you doing? Like, I don't understand, God, what you're doing. This is hard for me. Perfectly honest, I wish I wasn't even born. God, what are you doing? You see that in the Psalms. Honest people asking God big questions. God, what are you doing? Mary, when the angel Gabriel goes, hey, you're, you're going to give birth. And she's like, um, question. Like, I've never been, you know, let me tell you about the I, I have a question. In contrast to someone like Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist, who didn't ask an honest question, he just struggled with things believing that God couldn't do it. As opposed to people who ask, how is God going to do it? I have a question. Do you have an honest heart? Can you tell the truth? Can I come up to you and look you in the eyes and ask you how your marriage is? And you'll tell me the truth? Or do you do this? It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Why? What'd you hear? Can I look you in the eyes and ask you about work? 
and you'll tell me the truth? Can I look you in the eyes and ask you about your prayer life, your devotional life, your reading life? What will you tell me? It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Some of you are like, Pastor Paul, how do you know stuff? I'm like, you're really bad liars. You're just really, really bad liars. I do not have a magical sixth sense. I'm like, it's written all over your face. It says liar. And I know it and you know it. But the problem is, we'll still do it, won't we? We'll show up on Sunday morning and we will lie through our teeth. We will lie when we greet one another. We will lie when we sing. We will lie when we pray. And instead of rushing forward to his grace, we will blitz out the door. Lying. To say that everything's okay. But Nathaniel had an honest heart. An honest heart. He, I got a question, and Philip's like, well, come and see. Come and see. And so what do we see him doing? It says this in verse 47. I love this. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him. This jumped out at me this week. Can that be said of my heart? That my heart is going towards Jesus, moving towards Jesus. That in my struggle, in my questions, I'm moving towards him. Verse 47, Nathanael coming towards him said to him, Jesus said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you? When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Because fourthly, Nathanael had a humble heart. A humble heart. Let's open that up a little bit. A humble heart. Yeah, it was a studying and patient and honest heart, but it was also a humble heart. He's moving towards Jesus. He turns towards Jesus. He uses three terms to describe his encounter with Christ. He calls Jesus rabbi. He calls Jesus the Son of God, then he calls Jesus the King of Israel. I think each of those is important. Let's look at them in turn. Rabbi, teacher. A recognized teacher, Jesus was. He was an itinerant rabbi. And so it makes sense that he would call Jesus rabbi, 100%. Yeah, lots of people recognize Jesus as a rabbi. Who is Jesus? You open up, you know, world history book, world, world studies book, religions, Jesus, rabbi. Oh, Okay. And then he goes on to say, oh, son of God. Maybe it was the omnipotence, uh, the all-powerful, the, all the omniscience, the all-knowing, the omnipresence, being everywhere that enabled Jesus to see, to know that Nathaniel recognized. Hey, there's something God-like about him, son of God, one like God. And there might be some who just casually tell me about Jesus. Yeah, hey, you know, son of God stuff, miracles and stuff. Rabbi and stuff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people might do that. My son's in a world religions class at school. That's been fun. That's been fun. I keep my mouth quiet. But look at the third thing he says. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel gets really personal. And speaks of his own allegiance now. Not just rabbi, not just a teacher, not just you know, some kind of godlike guy who could do miracles and know stuff. No, you are the king of Israel. You are the true king. Because Jesus had said to him, You are a true Israelite. And Nathaniel bends his knee and says, And you are my true king. That's a, a humble heart. One in whom there is no deceit. Have you said that? Do you say that? Or maybe you're content. Dude, I'm okay with Jesus being a rabbi. That's cool. 
That's cool. I'm cool with him doing God stuff. That's cool. But you know the whole king thing? Not really my deal. Okay, that's fine. You got to wrestle with this process. Like Nathaniel wrestled with the process. And you must come and humble your heart and recognize, yes, he is my king too. Or to be honest, you're just lying to yourself. Because in Nathaniel, there was no deceit. Deceit like their forefather, Jacob, who lied and manipulated, who had an earthly mindset, who was caught up in systems of greed. That was Jacob. That was Israel. So let me share something with you that I learned that maybe will help us press into this a little bit more. Someone had asked me before church where I was going to be poking them today. This is the poking part. I read something, and I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's true. If it is, I'm a little blown away. But I read this week, from what I would assume to be a reputable source, that one in five people will bet on the Super Bowl tonight. One in five people are going to bet on tonight's game. Now, I don't know if that includes like everything from like a husband and wife saying, hey, if the Chiefs win, you wash the dishes for the week. Or you're like, all right, well, the Eagles win then, not happening. So I don't, I don't know. Or if it's just online gambling, I don't know. But someone said, looking at the numbers, and believe me, these are people that look at numbers, right? It is their estimation that one in five people will bet on the game. $16 billion on tonight's game. So I'm like, what? Now, I didn't grow up with gambling. I mean, my family, I love my family. That did not a vice in our house. I remember grandma and grandpa having like the Powerball thing. And you know, after the news, you know, they, the balls run up. I remember trying to guess the numbers. Never, not once ever did I ever guess one of the numbers. Like it never happened. Never happened. And tonight's Powerball. No, it never won anything. Never saw anything. Yeah. Gambling's just not something that happened in our house. But then in the back of my mind, I started to hear and remember, oh, wait. There's like a gambling thing now going on in Ohio that wasn't going on before. As a pastor, I should probably look into this because these are my people. And maybe many of you are familiar as of January 1st, online sports betting legal in the state of Ohio. And this is what they've said so far as the people who have been following the numbers. That Ohio since January 1st, has outpaced the state of New York in the volume of online gambling. It is what they are calling monumental. Quote, Ohio has been one of the most impressive market launches we have seen. It's Ohio. It's Ohio. Ohio, God bless Ohio. It's Ohio. Ohio has outpaced New York in its volume of online gambling. Like where New York City is. while at the same time they've said that the phone calls to hotlines for compulsive gambling and addiction help has doubled overnight. Isn't that interesting? The heart of gambling is risking something of value, often money, to get something of greater value, often more money. In a game of chance or luck, 
quickly and without having to work for it. So I asked myself, what if we put that topic, how would Nathaniel respond to it? How would a studying heart and a humble heart and an honest heart and a patient heart address the question of gambling? Online gambling. Because now they're like, now that it's on your phone, they say, you can place a bet every 20 seconds. How should we feel about that? How should we think of it? What's the Christian's response? Is gambling a sin, Pastor Paul? Well, so I did what I thought Nathaniel would do. I started going through scripture and here's some of the things I've found. One of the things that scripture would lead me to understand is that I do not want to love money. I do not want to love money. There's an appropriate attitude. Here's some of the verses. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity, says in Ecclesiastes. Luke 16, no servant, this is Jesus, FYI, the red letters, the ones that really count, okay? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So scripture says you don't want to love money. You don't want to be in that kind of relation. You don't want to love money. Well, that would then lead me to conclude as I look at passages, I don't want to play with money either. You don't play with it. Isn't that what some people say? I'm going to go play the lottery, right? So is, what about playing with money? Here's some other passages. Luke chapter 12. And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Proverbs, the book of wisdom, right? A stingy man hastens after, that means chases after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. How many of you have ever heard stories of people that won the lottery, hit it big, and it ruined their life? Yeah. Proverbs 28, 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich, means looks for rich quick, will not go unpunished. I don't want to love it. I don't want to play with it. It's not something that you play with. You don't play with money. And when you're gambling, aren't you using money to get more money? Because it seems from scripture that money has a unique capacity to poison my heart. Money has a unique capacity, if not handled correctly, to poison my heart. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith pierced themselves with many pangs. Because the love of money is a root. And from that root, a whole mess comes. Loving it, playing with it. It's called avarice. It's a capital sin, meaning from this sin, lots of other things cascade from it. If you love it, if you play with it, if you make it what it's all about. It brings a whole mess along with it. That to use money, to get more money, that craving poisons my walk with Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Paul, you're talking about money, not gambling specifically. Show me the verse that says, thou shalt not bid gambling online. It's not there, is it? You're right. There's no verse in the Bible that tells you not to do online gambling. Absolutely right. To that, let me tell you a story. This is the very first story that I was told as a young assistant pastor just beginning in full-time ministry 23 years ago. I was two weeks into being a full-time pastor at a church up in New York, of all places, the Finger Lake region, beautiful country, Auburn, New York. Two weeks into it, my first full-time position 
working with my first full-time senior pastor. And he told me this story. It's one of those stories that gets passed around from other pastors to pastors and shows up in sermons lots of times to teach a point. It's a story that I'm going to share with you because I think it makes its point. A young girl was walking through the night and came to a river that needed to be crossed and it was a cold night and the water was cold and she needed to ford through the river to get to the other side to make the journey home. It was not running too fast, but it was definitely something to take seriously. And there happened to be coiled up next to the river on a boulder, a snake. And the snake, the serpent, said to the young girl, Will you please carry me across? I cannot swim and it's too cold. I'll die. And the girl looks at the snake, Seriously? Seriously. Do I look like a fool? Why would I do that? You'll bite me. I promise I won't bite you. I just need to get to the other side. You can carry me. The water is cold and I cannot swim. Please carry me. I promise. I won't. Will you please carry me across? And she looks at the snake. And the snake looks back at her. And she looks at the snake. And the snake looks back at her. She says, okay. And she reaches down and she picks up the snake and holds the snake kind of out at a distance a little bit as she begins to make her way across the cold river to the other side. And as the water begins to move up her ankle, up her leg, the snake says, would you please hold me a little bit closer, please? Please hold me closer. I would hate for you to accidentally drop me. The water is cold. I cannot swim. Will you please hold me closer? I'll hold you closer. And the water begins to move up her leg and the water begins to move up her waist. Would you please maybe put me inside of your coat? I feel like I'm getting a little bit more cold. There's more chill there than I can handle. Please put me close to your heart so that I can stay warm. And sure enough, the young girl takes the serpent and puts the serpent inside of her coat where it is more warm. And she makes her way through the river. And then she begins to make her way up to the other side and the water begins to move down and much relief, of course, comes across her spirit and her soul until all of a sudden she feels the two pangs, the two fangs plunge deep into her breast. And the venom of the snake and its numbing effect and power, its poison leeches its way through her entire body as she begins to get nauseous she begins to lose consciousness and she begins to fall back into the water. And as the throes of death are about ready to wash over her, as the water is about ready to take her under with her last breath, she says to the snake, why, why, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And as the snake swims off, says to the young girl, you knew what I was when you picked me up. You knew what I was when you picked me up. Gambling, as far as I can tell, does not trust in the provision of God. Did you know that the name Nathaniel means that God gives? Gambling devalues the role of work in creating order in this world and often creates more chaos in its wake. It gives money strongholds in our heart. It perpetuates the lie that money is the answer. It's built on the lie that winning happens. It supports systems of evil that are built on destroying others. It creates addicts and poverty. If culture is begging you to do it, shouldn't you maybe second guess it? And let me just speak briefly to the system of. Because some of you have said, hey, I don't understand the big deal. You give them five bucks, they give you like 200 to play with. The $5 that you give them subsidizes the system of evil that is built upon creating addicts and poverty. You are subsidizing systems of injustice that the follower of Christ is called to speak out against. You are paying $5 
so the snake can bring others down. I don't think Nathaniel would have had online betting on his phone. But then again, he didn't have a phone. To tie it all together on your notes, write this down, please. A seeking, a heart seeking Jesus sees heaven open. A heart seeking Jesus sees heaven open. Jesus says to Nathanael in verse 51, as you write that down, a heart seeking Jesus sees heaven open. Truly, truly, I say to you, plural, all who will, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference to the passage where Jacob, soon to become Israel, sees a vision and that vision, there's a ladder it goes from where he is and it sends up to the heavens and he sees angels ascending and descending back and forth and he calls this place Bethel and he says, oh, truly God is in this place. But Jesus takes that verse and he twists it and then he says, you will see spiritual things happening, joy abounding. And I am the ladder. I'm the connection. I am what's between you and the things of God. Jesus is the source of heaven's joy. Jesus is our participation in the work of God. Jesus is the one through whom blessings are unleashed. The one who is the truth, the way, and the life. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today, and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can. Again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instruction.